Well, welcome to Fellowship Bible this morning. My name is George Olmstead. I'm one of the associate pastors here on staff. And if you would be in prayer for our pastor uh, as he travels uh, the country, we just uh, ask that he has safe travels and comes back to us nice and safe. So just keep Grant in your prayers. Uh, back uh, when the Old Testament was being settled, I'm sorry, the Old Testament? No. Back when the Old West was being settled, a little different time frame. Yeah, you were listening. Good job. Back when the Old West was being settled, pioneers flocked across the country to California and Oregon. In one particular spot, on the eastern slopes of the Rockies, there was a large, dirt-covered rock protruding in the middle of the trail. If you ever played Oregon Trail, that rock got in your way quite a bit, didn't it? But wagon wheels were broken on it, and men tripped over it. Finally, someone dug up that old, that odd stone and they rolled it off the trail into a nearby stream. And the stream was too wide to jump over, but people would use this stone as a step to cross the cold creek. So it was used for years until finally one settler built his cabin near the stream. He moved the old stone out of the stream and he placed it in his cabin to serve as a doorstop. Well, as years passed, railroads were built and towns sprung up, and the, older, uh, the old settler's grandson went east to study geology. On a visit to his grandfather's cabin, the grandson happened to examine the old lump of stone and discovered that within that lump of dirt and rock was the largest pure gold nugget ever discovered on the eastern slope of the Rockies. It had been there for three generations And people never recognized its value. As a matter of fact, to some, it was a stumbling stone to be removed. To others, it was a stepping stone. And to others, it was just a heavy rock used to hold a door open. But only the grandson saw it for what it really was, a lump of pure gold. So this morning in our scripture reading, we read that Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. As Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, he was sharing the importance and the truth that Jesus, as the cornerstone, is the only way the church will prevail against the ways of the world. He was emphasizing the beauty of the church. The fact that that Jesus is what unites you and I as the body of Christ, as the church as a whole, and as a local body of believers here at Fellowship. Now, before spending time teaching through the passage in Ephesians that we read, we wanted just to to take a moment to to set the stage for that sermon. So today, we want to look at how Jesus taught that he is the cornerstone of the church. He's the precious stone that, that many had overlooked, even as he walked here on this earth, as we will see in our passage today. And he warned what would happen to those who would reject the cornerstone. So if you would, turn your Bibles to Matthew Chapter 21, we'll be in verses 33 through 46, and we'll have them on the screen as well. And we're going to study the parable of the wicked vine dressers. And this is going to give us an opportunity to understand Christ as the cornerstone. And so let's read together on Matthew, Matthew 21, verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a jury journey. The parable continues. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another 
and stoned a third. Jesus continues to teach. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. When we see that Jesus continues, but when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. The parable doesn't end there. It continues, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to another vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. And then Jesus looks them in the eye and begins to continue to say, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing the fruit of it, and he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. So it's important for us this morning that to understand this parable that we take some time just to, to walk through it. It has quite a few characters, so we're going to identify who they are so we can have a true understanding of the meaning. When we look at this, first we see the characters. The first character there is the landowner. So the landowner cares deeply about his land. He has set a hedge around it. He, he actually built a wall around the vineyard Why? To keep the animals from the grapes. You know, that's a good thing to do. He dug a wine press in it. And this was the vat into which the grapes were pressed in order to produce wine. But he also wanted to put extra protection. He built a tower to guard and protect the vineyard from the thieves. So the point of this verse here is to simply say that the vineyard was very well laid out. It was not carelessly conceived. If there is a lack of productivity in the vineyard, it's the cultivators will not be able to blame the landowner if the land does not produce fruit. Because here's what happened. That landowner had moved to a faraway land. So in your outline, I want you to, where you wrote the word uh, landowner, I want you to draw a line next to it, and I want you to write the name God. And then we have the vine dressers. The second set of characters are the vine dressers or the tenants. These are the ones who are renting out the place. These are the ones who have been entrusted to take the well-prepared land, the very nice vineyard, and work it, cultivate it, and produce fruit from it. They were the ones who were skilled in this work. So in your outline, I, I want you to draw a blank next to the word vine dresser that you just wrote out and write the name Israel. And you can even put a slash there and put the Jewish people. And then the next characters we see are the servants of the landowner. These are not the vine dressers. These are not the ones responsible for the land. These are the servants of the landowner that moved away with him. And they are sent for a reason. They're sent by the landowner to receive a portion of the crop. Here's what they were simply to do. Go check in on the vine dressers, bring back a report of the land as well as a portion of the crop. So here's what I want you to do. Where you wrote the servants, I want you to write a line out there, draw it to the side, and write the name prophets. Prophets. The next character we see listed in the parable is the son. And this is the son of the landowner. He is sent to the land 
as a last resort. He's going to give the vine dressers at least one more opportunity to make things right with the landowner. He's asking them to honor their commitment and to fill out their agreement. So in your outline, I want you to draw a line next to the word son that you just wrote down and write the name Messiah in a backslash Jesus. So we've identified the characters. It's, it's pretty clear who we have and who we're dealing with, but it's important that we understand the culture. When this was written, there were many foreign landowners in Israel. They were there because you can say that there was a lot of absentee landlords. So while they lived abroad, they owned a piece of land. And with this piece of land, they provided jobs for the local people to, uh, while making some profit for themselves. So it's important that we understand this background because there's legality to it. And it'll help us better understand the story. So here's what happens. It was necessary for the owner to send representatives to his vineyard every year. Because if he failed to do so, then he would give up under Jewish law. He would lose the right to claim the fruit of that vineyard. So he had to at least visit once a year. The landowner had to establish his rights by sending his servants year by year. Now, on the other hand, there was an attitude from the vine dressers, from the tenants, from those who were renting. They wanted to dispose the owner and they wanted to take the vineyard for themselves. This is the reason why they set about killing the servants and finally also the son. And we'll speak more to that here in a moment. But the reason why the son was sent as the last resort can also be understand legally, understood legally. Because after the third year, if the fruit was not given, the owner had to take legal action. And the only way he could take legal action was by sending a representative that had the power to take legal action. Now, it's very clear for us to understand that a servant had no right as an heir, no right to possess the land or to take this matter into court. But the son, being the heir, had the right to act on his father's behalf in a court of law. So it may seem very strange that the master, seeing that the tenants killed his servants, that he would risk the life of his son. But now we know why. He had no alternative Only the son had the right to act legally on his behalf. And so that's why in Matthew 21, 37, when it says, then last of all, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. The respect was there because he was the heir. He had the right. He had the ownership. And he could take the legal action against them. So the tenants had to kind of come up with a plan. Well, if we're going to kill the servants, we're going to kill the son. I mean, my goodness, there's got to be a story. And so... According to the law, here's what happens. They were trying to use the law in their favor. So if for somehow they could, they could uh, show that the vineyard was either unfruitful or that it wouldn't produce any fruit and they couldn't give it to the owner, guess what? They could blame the owner for giving them a very poor piece of property. As a matter of fact, they could even say it put them into bankrupt because they couldn't uh, pay their rent because they were unable to grow crops. So they could, in fact, sue the owner and ask for compensation for making them work in a very bad vineyard. And then even more, if they could make up a story where the son came to claim the fruit and claim the land, but all of a sudden he brought this big band of of soldiers with him or servants with him, and he was trying to forcibly evict them, although they couldn't produce the fruit, that if they killed him, that he would have been killed in self-defense. 
So this would be a very convenient story to tell the court of law because then they would be in a position to say that they acted in self-defense, which would be looked at as okay in the eyes of the law. So knowing this culture, we now have a clear understanding of why Jesus used this particular illustration in pointing out what happened between God and Israel, as well as what was going to happen as a result of Israel's action. So at this point, we, we, we've looked at the parable, we, we've seen the characters, we, we've, we've come and we, we've looked at uh, the part where now we need to make, we've looked at the culture, and now we need to look at the connection. The connection that is made is very clear, is the landowner had all the right to the land. He had prepared the land, so it was very good land. He called upon the vine dressers to yield the fruit of the land and then to offer up a portion of that fruit per the agreement. The vine dressers decided this. They wanted the land all to themselves and decided to make their own decisions on how the land was going to become theirs. They wanted to make the land, listen, their own little kingdom and force out the landowner. Therefore, they acted out and they killed, hurt, and rejected the servants. They killed and rejected the son. And now they were going to have the land based on a false legality. So with that said, we see the culture, we see the connection there, but now let's look at the spiritual connection that Jesus was making. He's making this connection. God's creation is very good. He's talking about you and me, all that have been created, the very good creation, mankind. And he desired to build his kingdom through his creation. And he needed to restore the broken relationship between him and the people he created. Remember the sin in the garden. So here's what he does. God has a plan. He called out and chose the Jewish people to make this happen. They were to be the vine dressers. They were to produce spiritual fruit, lead others towards faith in God. But the Jews, the people of Israel, who were entrusted and coveted with this restoration process, here's what happened. God gave them the law. He gave them the plan. He gave them the keys to the kingdom. And all they were asked to do was simply worship and obey and to serve the one who had given them the opportunity to be the chosen people. Instead, what did they do? If you read the Old Testament and you look specifically in the book of Judges, Israel continuously sinned in the eyes of the Lord. They continually repented when they were reminded of their sin. But there was a moment when it came to the point when the Israelites would not heed the prophet's warnings. They would not turn from their sin. They would not repent. They instead decided to create their own personal kingdom, their own personal legalities as how to be right with God. They made it about them and their works instead of about God and His grace. They killed They stoned, they hurt, they rejected anyone whom God sent to them, including God's own son. If you were to look at the rest of the chapter in Matthew, and as Matthew concludes, we see that this leads to the arrest, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. They did not take heed to the promise. God had given the promise and the prophecy concerning how the plan would work. Here's what would happen. He would send the Messiah. 
His Son to forgive the sins of the world, to rescue the lost, to restore the relationship between God and man. And the Israelites had the answers. Yet when it came time for God to make true to His promise, and He had sent His Son, Jesus, the Jews missed who He was. They rejected Him as the Son of a God and the Savior of the world. So what did Jesus do? God sent His Son, the Son of God, to earth to be born of a virgin, right? And He's on this earth, and His name was called Jesus. And He had left heaven, He came to earth, He fulfilled the promise of the Father. Here's what he, we are told in Luke, that He was coming to seek and to save those which were lost. He was coming to serve those instead of being served. He did not play favorites while He walked here on this earth. As a matter of fact, he spoke of the Father. He worked miracles in the name of the Father. His sole intention was to point the world to the Father so that they might be restored with him. Listen, Jesus, the Messiah, he came through the lineage of the Jewish people. He used the scriptures that God had given them to point out their waywardness, to point out their faults, to point out their sin, to point out that they were trying to do it their way instead of God's. And here's what happens. He found himself alienated, ridiculed, rejected by the ones whom he had come to save and to serve and to rescue. You know, when we think about this, the connection had been made. Put yourself in that crowd of people. Jesus is speaking a parable to the religious leaders and many have gathered around. Those who were in that circle of within earshot, let me tell you, they weren't dumb people. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying and what he, has, and what he was accusing them of well as, as well as what he was promising them. So listen, Jesus isn't sending a, uh, telling a, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning here just to, just to tell a story. He's got a purpose. He's got a promise that's included with this warning. That promise is this, in verse 42, Jesus references Psalms 118, 22, and 23, when he states, did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So, so what's a, what is a cornerstone? Listen, I, I'm not a builder, but I can, I can research, and I can look, and I can do some things, and I want to share with you, and many of you have done the same thing. If you've been in church, you might understand what This cornerstone is looked at biblically, but here's what a cornerstone is. It's the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. As the first stone laid, it becomes the reference point for all other stones laid subsequent to it. So everything finds its definition in this one piece, this one cornerstone. That's how the builders know if they're straight and if they're true. That's how they know if they're on the right track. That's how they know if they are deviating from the original intent of the structure. Listen, it's the foundational piece of the structure. So here when Jesus references the chief cornerstone, 
cornerstones throughout the Scripture are, are used symbolically in Scripture, and, and they picture Christ as the main piece of the foundation of the church and as the head of the church. As a matter of fact, the same word used for cornerstones, used for capstone, so we're talking about the foundation and the head. But Jesus is the beginning. He is the end of I'm sorry, Jesus is the beginning and is foundational to the church. I want us to be clear and understand that it is his church. He stands over the church in his rightful position of honor, guiding the church. Listen, the church has a purpose to fulfill its divine destiny. This part of our passage makes clear prophetically how Jesus will eventually be rejected by the religious establishment and ultimately he will be crucified. The promise Jesus provides is very simple. It's it's very direct. Because the Jewish people had rejected the cornerstone of faith, God was going to take the vineyard away from them. He was going to entrust it to someone else. He was going to give it to a people who would produce fruit, who would build his kingdom according to his plan and care for the land. This land would be the kingdom of God and his church, which he would establish and would include any and all people, listen, who would, by faith, place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, accepting him as the cornerstone of their lives, and eventually the church, and live according to his ways. So in this statement, we, we see that what, what being the cornerstone is all about. And why it's important for us as the church to continuously understand and to keep Jesus in his proper place as the foundation and the cornerstone of the church. In Ephesians 2, 19-22, we read this. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being what? The cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So in Matthew chapter 16, what happens? Jesus tells us that he will build his church. In Ephesians 5, we are told that Jesus gave his life for the church. Listen, church, Jesus is the foundation, the cornerstone of the church. And let us be reminded and hear it loud and clear this morning, it is his church. When Jesus is addressing the religious crowd here in our text, he is promising the church will replace Israel for a period of time. Now listen, I want us to understand that, that Israel is being blinded and their, their hearts are being turned away and they're being moved over for a period of time. The time as the new covenant is set in place as, as Jesus becomes the sacrifice And God's grace will reign supreme and the church will be the avenue of telling the world his story. Man, what a privilege that we get to be a part of. We get to tell God's story. He goes on in verse 43 and 44 to explain the consequences of the promise. Now, you and I would agree that consequences, there are both positive consequences and there's negative consequences. We don't really focus a lot on positive consequences, do we? We, we tend to, to focus on the negative. But there's positive consequences that we should probably talk more about uh, as, as we move forward in life. But here's what happens. As Jesus is teaching this parable, he provides two consequences. The first is positive. And here's the positive. 
There will be a people, there will be the church, who produces fruit for the kingdom. And their reward, as we know, will be be an eternity with the Lord in heaven. For those, for anyone to be a part of Christ's church, to be a part of the church, they've had to repent, they've had to place their faith in Jesus Christ. You must be a believer in him. That's who makes up the church. So we know that as we work for Christ, not to gain our salvation, but work because he has saved us and he's called us unto good works, that our eternal reward will be in heaven with him. It's a gift. But the great thing is, is he uses us while we wait for that reward. But then there's a negative consequence. And that negative consequence is an eternal consequence. It's an eternal consequence separating those who reject the cornerstone of God, from God forever. Now we know, according to Scripture, there is a place called hell. And that is what hell is. Yes, it's a place of torment and fire, but it's eternal separation from God, your Creator. So when we think about this, the promise was not received well. Could you imagine being in the crowd? As a matter of fact, you and I can understand exactly how the religious leaders, the chief priests, and all those who were rejecting Jesus felt in that moment. Because listen, when someone tells you you are being stripped of your authority, you are being stripped of your rights, you, you are being stripped of the land you own, well, what rages up within you? Anger. These people were angry. They were concocting a way of, man, how can we still get Jesus out of the picture? But for the believer, for those of us who have placed our faith and trust in him, listen, for the believer who has submitted to the authority of Christ and to the will of the Lord through Christ, hearing that we have no authority, that we have no right, but instead all is God's, God has gifted us grace and mercy, and God desires to use us in his overall plan to build the kingdom, our response is and should be totally opposite of the reaction of anger. Instead, it's a reaction of Why would you do that for us? For I want to serve you, Jesus. I'm glad you're the authority because when I get it, I kind of get it out of whack. I'm glad you have the plan and you have the will because guess what? When I try to do it, it seems I get off track quite a bit. Could you imagine if in that moment, the religious leaders of the time, the Jewish people would have just stopped? And recognized the truth and recognized who Jesus was in that moment. Being restored with the Father right then and right there, not later. Because we do know that, that, that Israel has a place in the end times. And we know that, that, that God is going to use them to continue to glorify him. But, but what if it would have happened then? Unfortunately, it didn't. As a matter of fact, now we, the church have the opportunity to be God's avenue of sharing his story and building his kingdom. This was a time when Jesus was letting the world know that grace would be available to the Gentiles as well, a different people. So what is the takeaway for today? What is the purpose of this parable as it fits within our study through Ephesians? Where does it fit with our life as a believer and as a, as a member of the church? Well, the purpose of this parable for you and me, we know what it meant for the Jews. A shift 
in the tenant of the land, a blinding of the eyes and the heart for a season for the nation. But the purpose for you and me is now the church is the vine dresser. We've been given the keys to the kingdom. We've been given a fertile soil. We are protected by the Lord and and we are to be ready for and active in the harvest. The Bible tells us that the harvest is plentiful, but what? The laborers are few. Why is that? Church has, God has given us the privilege and responsibility to go out into the highways and the byways and to share his story, what is called the gospel. We have that opportunity. We get to tend the land. And folks, let's not kid ourselves. The world that we live in is evil. It's full of hurt and pain and misery. And God has given this world, the church, to be the light of hope, to be the promise of who God is, to know that His good will overcome the evil. So as a church, we're now the vine dressers. Listen, we're also the fruit bearers. We are to bear fruit as we work in the field. We are to win others for Christ. Now listen, Christ does all the saving. We've made that very clear here at Fellowship. Christ does all the saving. We do all the sinning. But we get to do the sharing as well. But he's also called us to live a life set apart and holy unto him. So I just want to give us a warning as well this morning as we talk about who we are as the church. It's not the world's, uh, it's not the world's right, it's not the world's place to tell the church who our cornerstone is. The cornerstone is Jesus Christ. The church is not to welcome the ways of the world into the body or to love or to be gracious. But the church is not to become like the world. No, 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 no. The church is to stand upon the word of God as Jesus is the cornerstone. And the church is to look like Christ. And Christ loves. And Christ is full of grace and mercy. Christ is full of truth. And so, folks, I don't want you to think that there's legalism being taught from the, from the pulpit right now. I want you to understand that though the word of God is true, it's not about what we sing or how we sing or what we wear. or what we, I've, I've been down that road before. That's no fun. But what it's about is saying, listen, we're going to be about the holiness of who God is. And we're going to share his message to those who are lost and are in need. Because guess what? God desires for men to come to repentance. So let me ask you a question. What is the church going to do with the responsibility and the privilege we have been given? We cannot become like the Jews had in that day. We cannot make it about us and our works, but... We must make it about God and His grace. We must desire to see others come to know Jesus as Savior and and do all we can for Him. Listen, we must keep Jesus in His proper place as this cornerstone of His church. Here's who He is. He's the foundation that never falters, the authority that is absolute, and the hope and promise of salvation and a life lived according to Him. So let me ask you this morning, is Christ your cornerstone? 
Fellowship, let us ask ourselves, is Christ our cornerstone as the body? You know, our opening illustration showed us for years people missed the value of the stone. You know, that exact same thing can be said about Jesus as he's teaching this parable and, and, and as he has come and as he has gone, as he's waiting to return. Listen, Jesus is the precious rock, the firm foundation, and God has given us him as the cornerstone of our lives, both individually and as the body of Christ. For some, Jesus has been missed over and over and over again. He's been mistaken as another good person, another good teacher. He's been looked to as a self-help guru. And, and somebody is like, I'll just try Jesus on. Can I tell you this morning, that's not who Jesus is. No, this morning we understand he is the cornerstone. And there's a difference. He's the only foundation on which to build your life upon. He is more than the great. He is more than and greater than anyone or anyone else. His value is more valuable than gold. His value is the giver of life and the forgiver of sin. Listen to me this morning. He is the rock of ages. He is the great I am. He is the king forever. He's the beginning and the end. He's the Lord and servant. He is the son of man. He is the lion of Judah. He is the risen lamb. He is the second Adam. He leads us on. He is Yahweh's glory. He has been revealed in flesh and bone. He parts the oceans. He makes the way. He is the defeater of death. And listen, he has risen from the grave and allowed us to do the same because he is full of mercy, rich in love. He is Jesus Messiah, the one to come. He is the cornerstone to the believer's life. And listen, church, he is the cornerstone to who we are as a body. Let's pray. God, we love you.